This is not anything new in in the world, but there is a famous speech by Salvador Allende in the UN in which he denounces the growing power of corporations eroding democracy, which only got worse. Hello, brothers and sisters, and welcome to the Solidarity Center podcast, an interview show that highlights and celebrates the individuals working for labor rights, the freedom to form unions, and democracy across the globe. I'm your host, Shauna Bader-Blau. I'm also the executive director of the Solidarity Center in Washington, D.C. We're the largest U.S.-based international worker rights organization. We empower workers to raise their voice for dignity on the job, for justice in their communities, for greater equality in the global economy, and for one just future. Today, people are thinking a lot about democracy and how it's under attack around the world. In recent weeks, we've seen the subversion of democratic processes and outright coups from Myanmar to the United States. And the erosion of civil liberties and human rights, a trend in recent years, has been intensified by the pandemic. Violations of worker rights are a big part of these moves to cut off civil liberties. More and more, governments and employers are restricting the rights of workers, making it difficult, sometimes even impossible, for them to join unions to make their voices heard. They're even jailing union leaders and members who exercise their rights. So what's standing between us and rampant authoritarianism? Often, as we will hear today, it's workers, their unions, and labor rights activists. For more than 100 years, workers and their unions have been a driving force for democratic change around the world. They have advanced a vision of democracy centered on political freedoms, economic rights, and social justice. My guests today are both key figures in the labor movements of their respective countries, and today we'll hear about the unique and powerful ways they organize for social change. Later in this episode, we'll hear from a brave labor leader in Belarus, Sergei Antasevich, and his experience organizing against the backdrop of Cold War-era Soviet-style autocracy. But first, my conversation with Maximiliano Garcis in Brazil. Garcis is the president of the Brazilian Association of Union Lawyers. He represented families of the 272 people who died in a preventable mining disaster in 2019. The Brumadinho mining dam was only held back by walls of sand that eventually collapsed into the mine and surrounding community. It's among nearly 100 mining dams in the country built the same way. Garcis calls this tragedy industrial homicide, one committed by a major multinational company, Ballet. And they are certainly no exception. Corporations around the world literally get away with murder. In fact, 2.3 million women and men around the world die from work-related accidents and diseases every year, many of which are preventable. That's more than 6,000 workers dying on the job every single day. People have to risk their lives because they don't have a say. And that's because private corporations often put profit above people. Brazil's populist right-wing government is now privatizing publicly owned companies, making them even less accountable. Garcis will describe how the Vale disaster is a direct result of the government's privatization efforts. 
and he will share how the Brazilian labor movement is working toward a democracy that includes economic rights, social equality, and justice in the political system. A democracy in which corporations are held accountable for their actions. We begin our conversation talking about how his work as a labor lawyer has evolved. My main work in the last 10 years or so has been a combination of a classic labor employment lawyer, mainly with class actions. But since the coup in Brazil in 2016, we created new sectors of our law firm to try to fight regressive policies, especially trying to prevent public-owned companies from being privatized. And, you know, you have played a real role in some major legal battles with private sector companies and privatization in Brazil. I'm, I'm thinking about 2015 and 2019, dam destruction and environmental and, and loss of life. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that work. Thank you. Yeah, my law firm was retained by the unions that represent the workers in the Brumadinho Dam collapse in 2019. And my life has been a bit of upheaval since uh, January 2019. 270 lives were lost by a, what I consider, consider not an accident, but a foreseeable industrial homicide uh, made by Vale a multinational company with headquarters in Brazil and by Tufsud, a German company. I mean, Max, it's such a, a powerful word you used, industrial homicide, and nobody has been criminally charged. How does that happen? You need a concerted effort of a very cruel elite in Brazil to allow that to happen. One of the factors, Brazil is the last country on earth, except by Mauritania, to have abolished slavery. We are one of the very few Latin American countries that never punished the torturers and the criminals during the dictatorship. We have one of the worst Gini indexes that measure inequality in the world. And we have uh, a state, both federal and state governments and state apparatus that doesn't deal well with crimes committed by corporations. So we have an incentive to, to greed in a, a system in which killing people has been worthwhile. We want to change that using the, the valley as an example. Can you talk a little bit about the status of worker rights in Brazil more broadly? You're describing a cruel elite. You're describing an intersection of corporate and government elite that results in inequality and unfairness and impunity for, in this case, the deaths of many hundreds of Brazilians. Can you talk a little bit about the status of worker rights in Brazil and how worker rights has evolved in recent years? We had uh, labor legislation that was implemented in 1943 and pretty much stayed untouched, had some regressive policies during the military dictatorship, but still most of it was in place. The years of the, the Workers' Party in power from 2003-2016 had several advances. They weren't 
radical, but several incremental advances that were important. The minimum wage was almost doubled its value, and we had recognition of several sectors of the labor movement. We had collective bargaining became stronger. But then after the coup in 2016, which I don't consider impeachment, we consider a coup, which one of the aims was to to give more powers to the elite and try to destroy the labor sector, lots of bad things happened, including the labor reform. I was called in parliament as an expert in 2017 and to representing Latin American Association of uh, Labor Lawyers, which I had the pleasure to be their director for legislative affairs for a number of years. And then when I was called, I started my presentation saying that before we analyzed the labor reform that was that was sent to parliament by Temer, the, the president that took over, I said that there was a preliminary aspect that should be analyzed, that the bill was non-existent because it was signed by someone that occupies the presidency illegally by a coup done by the MPs. I said that in front of the MPs. It was a, a big mess in parliament. One MP stood up and said he was going to beat me up, and they called me a thief, an animal, and the caucus of the left had to intervene to guarantee my right to speak for 20 minutes. Eu tenho... Seu presidente, é sério isso, seu presidente? É sério isso, seu presidente? Vamos respeitar os convidados, vamos respeitar os convidados. Vamos respeitar o palavrão, vamos respeitar, que é isso? Que é isso? Vamos respeitar o convidado. Ele é convidado da casa. Por favor, seu presidente, por favor. They had a reaction even worse than I imagined. But then labor reform was implemented. We had unthinkable regressive policies that we never imagined would happen some sacred cows that we thought were would be untouchable happened. When you were just telling that story about speaking in parliament, you know, I'm imagining a scene where you're speaking truth from your experience as a as a lawyer, as an activist, as a human rights advocate. People are trying to shut you down. And this is like at the beginning of a a new moment in Brazil after decades of democratic advancement and the fight against inequality led by labor in many ways. And I wonder if you, when you think back on that moment, what did it feel like to be shouted down like that? What did it feel like to be threatened? Actually, the they almost made a service to me because that really gave visibility to the accusation I wanted to do. The, in minutes, it was in newspapers. The Intercept made a report about that. And I also have to give credit to several lawyers of my law firm. We spent a couple months before the event when I received the invitation. We went through the tax, tax forms of every MP that served on the, the, the labor board in favor of the measure. And we discovered which companies they owned. I had the list of uh, uh, labor and human rights violations by the MPs that were present in the room. And after in the big mess and the caucus of the left guaranteed I, I could speak, then I said that the most popular sport in Brazil wasn't soccer, but was violating labor rights. 
Wow. And then I mentioned as an example the name of the companies of the MPs present in the room. Then another round of shouting came up. So they kind of ate the bait. Coming back to our first question, the the state of labor rights, I explained to them that the labor reform they were presenting, which allowed outsourcing without any limits, it's like workers are treated as a merchandise that you can rent or sell as if they were objects. And I explained to them that not only it would be awful for the employees, but as a paradox, it would be even for the, the business elite, because we have an elite industrialists that are very myopic, very short term. The population is going from one outsourced job to another and then to be illegally hired as a one individual company, and then you are unemployed. You cannot have a proper trajectory of life, nor you can organize a competent labor force organizing the labor world that, that way. Also, it destroys the capacity of the internal consumption, which is a motor for a proper economy. So it goes even beyond their interests in the medium and long term. And that happens exactly as I said, the consumption in Brazil after the couple of years of labor reform was implemented. And this zero-hour contract they implemented, copying the tragic example of England was implemented and the salaries dropped in several sectors that depended on the consumption of the working class, which had greatly increased during Lula's government, collapsed, which created closing of factories. With Yesterday, Ford announced they are leaving Brazil. Bolsonaro, which also implemented awful things in the labor area, said last year that Argentina would collapse having a so-called communist government, then they're increasing their investments in China and Argentina. So the, our elite is very, very ignorant, and sometimes they, they shoot the workers and shoot themselves on the feet also. So decades of struggle for the expansion of democracy to indigenous people, Black Brazilians, women, the struggle against forced labor and for the environment. And then we, we come to this moment in 2016, 2017, with the election of a new government, or as you call it, a coup that brings in a new government. And you're standing there at this precipice in this moment and starting to watch what the movement has fought for and built over decades be eroded. Can you tell us a little bit more about other rights in the country that you are concerned about and are watching Brazilians experience a rollback in? Yeah, we are having not only labor rights, but several civil and political rights that any liberal democracy has to be eroded. Police brutality has been commonplace in Brazil. There are frequent pictures when you have a, a rally by by the left, by the liberal movement, you have incredible police brutalities only during the darkest years of a military dictatorship. We had several cases of police invading unions without warrant. Myself and several protests during the impeachment uh, felt the taste of tear gas and pepper spray. And, and when you have right-wing rallies on defense of the military dictatorship, trying to overthrow 
Dilma's government. You had the police taking selfies with the protesters and helping them and uh, being incredibly gentle to them. So quite a lot of what's happening in the U.S. As you're drawing this picture, you know, my mind is going back to where we started with the role of companies, privatized companies, companies like Vale, and the impunity with which corporations are able to operate despite negative impacts up to and including death. I wonder if you could draw a little bit more of a connection for us between impunity in government and impunity in corporations and how they're connected. This is not anything new in in the world or globalization made it worse, but there is a famous, I think, 1972 or 71 speech by Salvador Allende in the UN in which he denounces the growing power of corporations eroding democracy, which only got worse. AT&T, for instance, was one of the main drivers of the coup in Chile in 64. And nowadays we have this new form of overthrowing governments by lawfare, by faking judicial processes or fake votes in parliament with the help of corporations. 2018, we had something awful happen in Brazil. The judge that, in a very biased manner, was able to put Lula in jail. He was the the front runner in the polls and most likely would be elected. He was prevented from running. And then the same judge was in talks with the opposition, the candidate Bolsonaro, during the campaign. And after Bolsonaro got elected, he became the Minister of Justice. So once my kids went to know, to explain them what happened, and then uh, I said, imagine that our team is playing our nemesis. And then the referee gives three penalty kicks for the other team. And by the end of the game, they invite the referee to be president of uh, the team. That's pretty much what I, what it happened. So it has been uh, has been very challenging to be a lawyer in these terms. And I had now I remember something that I think the the most intense lesson I had in the last years concerning political science and democracy was given by my oldest son during the, the coup. The, when the Senate was voting for the final impeachment of Dilma, which was pretty much a simulation. We knew that the result would happen. I didn't want to follow that. It was very depressive. So I took my kids in Brasilia to a park for us to play. And then uh, there were the elite started throwing firecrackers all over the town. Then it, I knew it was the 53rd vote. So I tried to prevent my kids from seeing, but I did cry a bit. And then uh, my oldest ones, when we came home, said, Daddy, I would like to talk to you. What they did to Dilma uh, was wrong, like, right? To put them and say, yeah, it was wrong. Then he said, Daddy, when, when a company does something bad to an employee, then you go and you tell the judge what happens, right? And then the judge tells them to stop and correct what happens. Exactly. That's right, my son. Then he said, Daddy, I have an idea. You tell Dilma to go to the judge to tell her that what was done was illegal, and then he's going to put her back. Then I said, that's a very good idea, but she has already done that. Yes, and so she's going to go back. No, the judge 
siding with Tamer. Really, Daddy? Then he tried to come up with an answer. And like after 30 seconds or so, okay, he just left the room sad. So for that boy, the, the still the beginning of the concept of uh, democracy, of uh, rule of law, we still have judges in Berlin, was, was destroyed. At the end of the day, good beats evil. I hope one day he can recreate the concept in Brazil, but things only got worse. And we had an election which was fraudulent. The coup and the election has lots of to do with the international elite. And lots of things that are going to hurt the Brazilian elite in the short, in the long term. You know, when I'm when I'm hearing you describe this, you know, you're painting a picture that I feel, you know, is really, we've seen in a lot of countries, the corporate and government sort of collusion resulting in the retraction of democracy for average people and that there's an international dynamic and component and a domestic one. And I, and I wonder just, uh, you're a leader in an international network of lawyers that is trying to look at labor law all around the world. I wonder if you could expand a little bit and talk about what would it actually mean for workers to achieve true democracy? What does it look like in terms of how government treats worker rights and how corporations relate to workers? More and more, it's clear to me that the way capitalism works, democracy is just something that is present if it's convenient or not. The beliefs I had in liberal democracy, we can see that the elite drops it off whenever it's inconvenient. It came to such an incredible greed that now it's becoming clear that they are going against their own interests, not to mention climate change, that also is going to prevent corporations to have profits if there's incredible calamities. Even they, them are going to suffer. If the Brazilian elite is myopic, as I've shown, but the international elite also has difficulty with dealing with the interest of greed in the short term and long term. Destroying workers' rights and democracy is something that bites them in the head right now. It's very hard to fight, defend liberal rights and democracy right now because we have seen a downward trend. Thank you um, to my brother, Maximiliano Garcis. I appreciate the time and the energy, the vision and the analysis. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks so much. I'm so grateful to Max for helping us connect some of the dots. A few weeks after we recorded our interview, the news broke that Valet agreed to pay $7 billion in compensation. But get this, nearly 90% of this is being paid to the state and not the families of the workers. But Max and the Association of Union Leaders are not giving up. Where governments and corporations attempt to repress, workers' movements push back. The Brazilian labor movement and Max are inspirations. After the break, we'll hear from Sergei Antasevich in Belarus. My next guest is Sergei Antasevich, Vice President of the Belarusian Congress of Democratic Trade Unions. 
Belarus workers have endured repression for decades. They have risked their lives to protest restrictions on their democratic freedoms. That's why workers are now striking in massive numbers to demand democracy. Many have been jailed for their participation, and some leaders have even been sentenced to years in prison. Workers' strikes are a big way that workers and their unions have participated in democracy struggles around the world. Organizing and striking workers in South Africa helped bring down apartheid. In Tunisia and Egypt, the independent labor movement grew in size and stature because of the brave stance unions took during the Arab Spring protests of 2011. Today, we are seeing tenacious worker organizing and strikes for democracy in Myanmar and in Belarus, where our conversation with Sergei Antusevich begins with the massive resistance movement led in large part by workers. The movement began last summer to protest unfair and undemocratic presidential elections. These protests continue even now despite massive police brutality and the arrest of thousands, many of whom have been beaten and tortured by security forces. Take us to that moment in August of last year when the presidential election happened and afterwards people rejected the outcome. When is the first time you really realized that this was a different time in history than ever before? After years of excessive violence against peaceful protesters in many factories uh, began to express their position actively, protest against violence and fraud, and uh, started at first time in modern Belarus setting up strike committees. We have a ban for strike, for organizing strike. The protesters had had the demands resignation of Lukashenko and uh, his clique and in violence and repressions and holding fair elections. At the same time, at the call of our organization, BKDP, the workers and employees began to quit uh, the uh, state trade unions and try to create independent trade unions. Wow. The protesters gave rise appearing numerous civil society initiatives and NGOs. New organizations have appeared where uh, they have never excited, particularly in uh, healthcare institutions and uh, educational establishments. We met many times these people, doctors, teachers, students. It's uh, incredible. Really, I, I, I don't have this feeling uh, before. So across sectors, blue-collar workers in factories and in other blue-collar industries, white-collar workers from teachers to people in hospitals and universities, across the whole variety of types of employment in Belarus, we have independent worker committees forming and people joining independent unions, it really feels like the workers' movement is deeply at the heart of the democracy movement in Belarus. And I wonder if you could tell me why that is. Where does that come from, that spirit of organizing and worker collective power and engagement? 
I try to explain uh, our legislation system and uh, repression regime, uh, repre repression uh, all freedoms, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, and uh, Belarus uh, in the blacklist, in the short, li short list in every year in the ILO, ILO International Labor Committee Commi uh, Conference. I think uh, this year was uh, another trigger for changing the regime was attitude of Lukashenko towards uh, the COVID-19 problem. At first, he denied it at all the existence of the epidemic. Then he began inventing his own version of pandemic and its treatment. But each time trying to conceal a real statistic and extent of the disease. This disdainful attitude towards the people also played a very important role in escalating the protesting. Of course, finally, Lukashenko came to election having imprisoned but practically all his real opponents. Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, who went to the polls instead of her husband, Sergei Tikhanovsky, who was imprisoned by Lukashenko, has personified the fight for fair election only. There was only one point in her program. It's the main problem of our life, holding fair election in the country after the victory within six months. And she represents, as we understand it, a large number of women leaders in the country of Belarus across civil society and the emerging activist class. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the role of young women and women leaders in this movement? Women began the protests after uh, brutal violence after August 10th and 11th, when uh, a lot of people was beaten, a lot of people was uh, detained, a lot of people jailed and, and uh, opened uh, criminal cases. And the uh, first rally, women rally in Minsk, was really, really, really so, so emotional, so hard when uh, women uh, staying with, with flowers in uh, white color clothes. I, I, I have the. Uh, I not have enough uh, words to describe my feelings. It's very, very, very uh, strong and emotional. And after that starts uh, other rallies. I have birthday on uh, 16th of August. It was first 300 rally in Minsk. I never seen a lot of people in my birthday. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you're painting such a vivid picture of the rallies, women wearing white and holding flowers, public squares filling with more and more people. And Brother Sergei, when you think about the future for your country, what does a free Belarus look like to you? For me, it's a uh, free country pro-European country. It's so, it's so hard because uh, 20, 26 years people can't to do 
can to participate in in in, uh, in real social activities in real civil society organizations our organization of real uh, unions it's only 10000 people it's little little uh, another one pro state federation uh, had a 4 million and a half million people we need to build strong unions now i uh, know that we need a lot of training and education collective bargaining organizing campaigning occupational safety and health at work issues because millions of people affiliated uh, to the state controls unions had no idea what a real u- what real unions should be you know brother Sergey, could we take a minute on that because i think not all of our listeners will understand the role of a state labor federation it's not the role of a trade union, really. It plays a different kind of role in a repressive state. Can you just tell us a little bit about the state-controlled federation? What was its job? What did it do? In 2002, when I uh, first time was in Germany, I asked about the uh, role of uh, workers and organization in the fascism, fascism time. And uh, the answer was... Uh, at the enterprises uh, level, this organization sometimes helps to people. And at the national level, it's only only voted for for state for president. It's not real union. It's I I, I can't to to call uh, this uh, social dialogue process. But but sometimes uh, we participated in in uh, this meeting. It's a real Soviet Soviet type system when uh, you can't criticize authorities, maybe sometimes government, but not president. So a state labor federation has members that are workers, but they don't play the role in the society at the enterprise level with employers or with the state of fighting or advocating for workers' rights. Contrast that to your independent trade union federation and your hopes for the future of the independent labor movement in Belarus. What do you hope become the gains of the new independent unions of Belarus? I saw that uh, we we don't have a social dialogue in the country for 26 years, as long as the regime has been established. Social dialogue uh, exists as uh, formality in order to disorient the world community. And formal government, formal trade unions, and employers play similar lo- role in our country. And uh, in our situation, all social partners will have to start the work on building up a social dialogue in the country practically from zero. For us, it's a very important task. So social dialogue where workers and their representatives, employers and their representatives, and the government actually negotiate over labor market and wages and working condition, minimum standards, and other things. Is this possible to achieve absent democracy? 
I expect that without real social dialogue, we don't have any chance to build a democracy in our country. Only on uh, international labor standards, uh, we must to build new model of uh, social dialogue. And uh, we will uh, have a new process of uh, negotiation, real negotiation with uh, employees, uh, with uh, employers, employees with employers. So, Brother Sergey, let's turn to what's happening right now. In the New York Times opinion piece that you published, very powerful piece you published in August of last year, you closed by saying change is happening in Belarus and that Belarusians are ready to confront the uncertainty going forward and the uncertainty of the future. Talk to me about that uncertainty right now. Do you feel you've turned the page and we're headed in a new for a new Belarus? Does the movement feel the momentum is towards democracy and towards openness? How are you feeling? How is the movement feeling right now, months into the struggle? This article uh, was with uh, real, uh, real emotions. In August, it was incredible thing when we had a lot of meetings, a lot of marching, a lot of rallies. But uh, now we live in New Belarus because uh, people were changing. People opinions, majority of people voted for democracy. But we have police state regime and uh, we have old legislation, a lot of obstacles. For example, when we establish a new uh, new trade union organization, we must to have permission from the authorities. Yesterday, we were received three cases when authorities forbidden to us to establish uh, and uh, legalize our our organization. So the authorities are blocking Block, your right yes. to form international unions yes. in court. Yes. Yes. Sergey, why is the government so afraid of the trade union movement? <laughs> because uh, because uh, they always say that uh, workers voted for president and uh, voted uh, for strong state and uh, these rules. Now, this is uh, not true. You were saying earlier there's been a fundamental change in the people. Yes, yes. What else has changed, do you think, permanently in Belarus? General change in the head, in the minds. Today people know that uh, a pro-democracy society is a majority. It's not, uh, not uh, 10 or 20 percent. It's a majority. It's up to, up to 80, up to... 90% of people might be in the, in the village, in the small towns where people don't have uh, tablets, computers, and uh, see only state television. They recognize this political regime like, like a power, like a, like a real, real power. And in Minsk, in big cities, in the towns, no. 
you know, I was thinking about your long leadership in civil society through years of repression and in this movement. And I know you must have drawn inspiration from somewhere. Where, where do you get your inspiration personally? Where do you get your drive to stay in this, this struggle and in this movement for workers and for a more free Belarus? My inspiration is uh, uh, this is a people. People who stand and fighting after this uh, August. I know that uh, I have neighbors, I have uh, uh, workers at uh, several enterprises, a lot of enterprises in Belarus, who wants to live in a free and democratic Belarus in in a European country. I really want to thank you for sharing so much of this powerful story with us today. Uh, I thank you because it's uh, very important for me to share this information. And uh, sometimes I, I can't find uh, English words and uh, emotions for explaining I felt very every single one of your emotions, Sergey. It's a powerful story of workers coming together, brave and standing up for fairness in their country after years of repression. It's a powerful story, your story, my brother Sergey, of a life dedicated to your people, your country, your labor movement, and for a vision of the future that inspires, I'm sure, everyone who hears this story. Thank you so much, and thank you for sharing your experience with us. Thank you. Now that's bravery. In the midst of a brutal regime, in the face of repression meant to crush them, the brave workers of Belarus are striking, marching, and never giving up. And as they build new unions, they are making sure the rights and interests of workers are part of a democratic future. As different as the challenges for labor are in Brazil and Belarus, there's a key concept that unites the efforts there and beyond. Labor rights are a foundation of true democracy. It's a concept that we know is under attack around the globe, but people are pushing back and building a better future which is why it is so vital to share these stories and celebrate the people and organizations that are making a difference. Thanks again to both of my guests, Maximiliano Garcis and Sergei Antusevich, two heroes. Your work is inspiring and contributing to a more just future for the billions of us. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the Solidarity Center podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your shows and learn more about the Solidarity Center at SolidarityCenter.org and through our social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Tune in next week when we'll talk to our Solidarity Center colleague, Prita, about organizing migrant workers in Thailand in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Both Thai workers and the foreigner migrant workers have the same demand. They want Thailand to ratify the ILO Convention number 87 and 98. I think 100 years already that ILO established with the support of the Thailand 
but Thailand still not decide to ratify this core convention. This podcast is a production of thestoryproducer.com with executive producer Tyler Green and producer and engineer Adam Yaffe. The Solidarity Center podcast is a member of the DC Labor Radio Podcast Network. A special thanks to the staff of the Solidarity Center who assisted with this podcast. In more than 60 countries around the world, we work to ensure a righteous future for workers. Dignity, freedom, equality, and justice. For the Solidarity Center podcast, I'm Shauna Bader-Blau. Thanks for listening.